Hey guys, welcome to the Scientist Podcast. I'm your host, Akram Al-Wahabi, and today our guest is Dr. Maryam Al-Qubati. She's a Yemeni gender equality and social inclusion specialist with a background both in IT and in social studies. She graduated from University of Ottara, Malaysia, where she got her bachelor's degree in information technology, majoring in information management. She got her master's and PhD from University of Tsukuba in social studies. She is now working as a researcher and gender specialist with Sana Center for Strategic Studies and as a diversity and inclusion facilitator with Enjoy Japan KK. The interview with Dr. Mariam was very educational for me and I'm sure that many of you can enjoy and learn from what she said during the interview. As usual, before we get into the episode, I would like to ask you to subscribe and or follow this podcast. Follow if you haven't already and let's get to the podcast. Hello everyone, thank you for joining us. Today I'm with Dr. Mariam Arkobati. Uh, thank you for joining us today, and uh, I hope that well, you will share a lot of your background with us today, your research and everything. Hope so. so in the beginning, could you introduce yourself to us, please? Uh, yeah, sure. Uh, so hello, everyone. Uh, I'm Maria Matkovati. Uh, I've been in Japan for a good eight years. Uh, I came here to do my master's, and I did my PhD as well. Uh, before that, I was in Malaysia, so I have a bachelor's degree in information technology as well. And yeah, I've been to or I've traveled and studied in other countries like the U.S. as well as Nigeria. Uh, and yeah, more or less uh, here I am today. That's Perfect. All. I understand your PhD or your research is in uh, like social sciences, right? Yes. Social studies. So I, I don't think I've interviewed many people or I don't know many people with this background. So would you please share with us some of the information? Like, first of all, what are social sciences? And let's let's start from there. Okay. Well, social sciences, I wouldn't say it's the opposite of natural sciences, biology and medicine and so on, but uh, it's quite different in the fact that it has to do with things that affect us, our daily lives. Uh, we're looking at things like human rights, uh, things like climate change, things like um, uh, abuse, whatever it might be, anything that surrounds us in international relations, politics, all of those are social issues, things that affect human beings. Uh, so more or less, that is what I study. And um, again, I like starting stories from way behind. So yeah. what got you interested in social sciences? Uh, that's a really good question. Social it, studies. I keep so, saying yeah. science. It is social science. Sciences? Okay. I'm, I'm I guess uh, yeah. they, everything has a science nowadays. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so yeah, it's a, it's a very interesting story. So as you may know, I told you my background is in IT. So I literally shifted my major completely from computer science to social sciences. So that is an entire shift that I did there. And maybe one of the core reasons as to why I did that was, uh, well, first of all, I studied, I started my studies in Yemen and then I transferred to Malaysia. Uh, it was the days of the revolution, the yes, the Thawra, and during the revolution, most of the universities had stopped working. So I transferred to Malaysia and I finished my studies there. So uh, as you may know, in Yemen, I wanted to do my studies in English and there were not a lot of universities that offered courses in English, uh, but I was lucky to have one university that's affiliated with a uh, national university in Malaysia and they had certain specific maybe four programs that we could choose from. We had business IT, interior architecture and design, interior design or something. Uh, God 
I am not good with anything to do with creativity. I have no skills. I cannot draw a cup to save my life. So no interior design for me. Uh, business is something yeah. I studied in high school and junior high school. So it wasn't too challenging and I love challenges. So I was like, you know, let's go for IT. I have no idea what it's about. And I was interested in learning about it. So I started IT. Uh, it was more of a challenge. Um, I wouldn't say like I was bad. I was uh, pretty good, I would say, at it. Uh, but my personality is... an extrovert. I am quite an extrovert, so I love human beings. I remember in Malaysia, I was speaking to my professor, sorry to digress. Uh, she was teaching us software engineering and, uh, you know, I submitted my project. She was like, oh, this is really good and so on and so on. And I said, okay, professor, I, I have a question for you. She said, what? I was like, what is the most human-related job in IT I could possibly do? And she's like, That what? Is such a <laughs> yeah, what? I, was like, I was like, okay, it's good. I code, uh, I program, it's fun, but I get bored. I really get bored. I want to do the project, finish it, and that's it. I submit it. But I'm not really like, oh, excited. Oh, let's... I, I would do it as a challenge, but I wouldn't do it as a hobby, for example. Mm. So I was like, I want something to do with human beings. Uh, sorry, yeah, to interact with human beings. But she said, you could be a system analyst. And I was like, okay, that, that sounds good. Anyways, that was one thing. I was like, okay, there's still some hope for me in IT. Let's keep going. <laughs> Now, I graduated university. I came back to Yemen after uh, being in Malaysia, studying and graduating. Situation was a little bit better at that time. I got a really good job at a very, very good company uh, with oil and gas. It had a lot of prospects, but I couldn't get a job in IT. So as you know, in Yemen, you know, you get, you take what you you can get. Yeah. And especially for good jobs with good potential for the future, um, there was more potential in human resources or PR or other fields than there was in IT. They were, the IT was very uh, constricted, restricted to a few people, and most of them were men, to be honest. So uh, it was very limiting, and I didn't like it in that sense. So... That was one the, reason. The, yeah. There were limited opportunities or the job was limiting? Ah, no, there were limited opportunities. Limited opportunities. opportunities. Oh, okay. So the IT department is very small. They were male-dominated. The women would be administrative positions and so on. Or you could get an IT maybe internship somewhere that paid very little. So it was not motivating at all. And I just didn't see myself doing that. Mm. So I went for, I was like, you know what? Anyways, it's something I just enjoy doing it. <laughs> IT, what I love about IT is mm. applicable to any field. Technology is the future, right? So yeah. whatever we do, we need it. So mm. anyway, I was like, you know, let's move on. So I was working at the company and I realized that whenever they had events, they would call me whenever they had, you know, PR. They just love me. They're like, you know what? You know, we want to, We are even considering, you know, sort of we were talking about moving me to CRSD, corporate uh, sort of service departments, because oh. that, was, that was more my personality. They loved that in me and I was very outgoing and that was pretty, pretty much what they wanted me to do as well. Uh, so that was one of the reasons I realized, okay, this is something I'm more excited about. Also, growing up in my society, there are a lot of, as you may know, a lot of social issues in our society, especially when it comes to women. And I was always very much... enthusiastic and passionate about things like that mm. and i guess that was another reason why i considered changing so yeah uh fast forward to where i am today and that's why i decided to change my field so your so your bachelor's was in it yes right uh how did the opportunity come for you to pursue your like post-grad studies and uh obviously i see you were interested in human beings and you know researching something that is going to do with human beings so 
talk us through the process like okay how, how, how it, it happened yeah so uh, i have to start by talking about my personality again and i think it's really important for us as human beings to know who we are and how we sort of navigate our way in life and i've noticed throughout the years from when i was young i'd always had this inclination or tendency to search for any opportunity to travel or any opportunity to just go explore the world wherever there's an opportunity i'm like where do I apply? <laughs> I'm like, yes, let's go. <laughs> My parents had a hard time with that. But yeah, um, from the age of 16, whenever there's something I'm like, yes, I will apply. I will deal with my parents later. So I, I was very excited about the world and exploring, you know, new cultures, speaking with people from all over the world. It was like there was a whole world out there that I had no idea about. And it was just fascinating. I was like, I, I really want to do that. So traveling has always been a driver for me, no matter what. So that is we have to put that, uh, you know, on one on one side. Now, other than the fact that I love to travel, I really, really, really love Japan. Like, I've loved Japan for about five years uh, while I was in Yemen. Well, uh, what, well what not mean, now. What no, do you mean I, love at that time, I had loved, well, I shouldn't say had, I, I still do. Uh, Japan still has a special place in my heart. Oh. But at that time, I had been following Japan and Japanese culture for a good five years, I would say. So that was like from the beginning of my university oh. level. So I, I got introduced to animation pretty much. <laughs> pretty much how, how, yeah. how many of us has gotten yeah. Yeah. gotten the opportunity for, to, to know about Japan. Yeah. So yeah, I remember just to tell you the story, sorry to digress again. Um, yeah. Every evening, you know, around 4 p.m., 5 p.m., that's when everybody's at home. Yeah. My uncle and my brother would stick to the TV, like literally on the TV screen, watching this animation called Naruto at that time. And I would say, what is wrong with you? Every day you're binge watching this. What is up with this, you know? And they're like, you know what? Just come and watch. I'm like, nah, nah. One day I was really bored. I was like, you know what? Let's just sit and see what it is. And I remember I came at the episode of Gara and Naruto. The first, before the Shippuden, when they were having that fight. Okay. And I don't know what it was about that thing that captivated me. From there on, eight years later, I'm in Japan. So, you know, that's proof to you how impactful that, that episode was. Right. So, so yeah. I, I think for me, it was the same. Like, I wouldn't say like I came to Japan because of animation, but it definitely had a very big role because of it. And yes, Naruto was the first animation that I see. And it was, I think, Rock Lee versus Gara. Ah, very nice. Yes, I remember very nice. it. Vividly. I remember it. And yes. My brother, my youngest brother, you yeah. know, was watching this on the computer and, and a very similar story to yours. He was just watching and I'm like, people are just jumping on the screen and I'm like, what are you watching? And yeah. he's like, oh, this is like anime. I'm like, the hell is anime? <laughs> I'm like, and he's like, it's in Japanese, that means cartoon. And I'm like, oh, do you want to see? And I'm like, maybe not. But then I, I said, maybe not, but I stayed. Okay. And I was watching. And I just completely hooked. got hooked on like this. Yeah. Yeah, they know how to realize which is Which is really interesting because one of the things that I discovered while I was in Japan is 80% of the cartoons we watch growing up are Japanese animation. They, Captain ah, Tsubasa, Captain Majid, yeah. uh, like everything. But we see it in Arabic, we have no idea. Exactly, and it's really old. Yes. When I came to Japan and I started asking like, you know, people I know, and like, do you know that cartoon? And they were like, yeah, but that's really old. old. We didn't even see that. That was like my father's generation. <laughs> Like Conan, or, uh, Conan like Adnan Wolina. Yeah, they were like, no, no, that, that's like very long ago. They, they kind yes. of like, really, you're watching that? And I'm like, everybody's watching, watching that. It. Like, we grew up watching that, right? Like, 
Yeah, so you became interested in Japan. And so, then, yes, yeah. I, de I decided to, you know, again, I finished university and my goal was I studied hard. Of course, I was good. I got really high GPA, CGPA, and I was like, okay, this is my turn. I can literally apply anywhere I want. Uh, I was looking at the US for Fulbright. I was looking at the Erasmus Mundus and I was looking at the Japanese one because I wanted to come to Japan. Uh, I The thing is, I had a friend who came here on Mexico undergrad i think till today he might be the only person who got the undergrad remind me of his name Faha. yeah yeah i've heard of him i never met him though. he is the only one that uh i'm sorry maybe i said his name uh i, do, I don't know if i you know, it should be fine yeah. it should be like, fine yeah, yeah yeah just mention names it's okay yeah yeah i'm gonna uh, have them all here <laughs> right yeah. no but he's not here anymore but anyways really? yeah he, he has left but because he was here what he did was he already told me a lot about it. So I, I didn't feel I was coming to a completely alien place. Mm -hmm. I felt, okay, there's somebody that would help me if I needed anything or I had any questions. So I, I did, you know, seek his advice quite a bit. And he sort of, he was in Yokohama, but I was going to be in Tsukuba. So I did ask him a lot of questions and that helped me a lot. Now, because of that, that sort of helped me feel a bit more confident about you know, coming here, but I also love challenges, as I said, so I could go to the US, but it's it's very convenient. It's English speaking. It might be really good at social sciences, to be honest. Uh, but again, this would be a challenge. It would be new language, new culture. It would be a growing experience that will help me grow. So I was like, you know what, let's let's do it. Plus, I got it earlier, like before the Fulbright, because the Fulbright, I had to prepare and it would take me another year. And thank God I did that because six months within me coming to Japan before we started. So, yeah. yes. Uh, so it was the right, the right choice. It was the right <laughs> yeah. choice. I, did I was not. about to ask you, like, do you regret it or not? But like you immediately no. answered like... I, I do not yeah. regret it, but yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm happy. Many people did try to convince me otherwise, but I, I, I'm happy. I stuck yeah. to my... I mean, it's... Okay, so about your... Uh, field of study yes. well what did you choose to study what was your research about uh, talk, yes. to, talk to us about it okay so again back to social sciences so the reason I, I did social sciences specifically is because in Japan uh, the way the graduate school works is a little bit different maybe from other countries they don't have like you don't have departments that are specialized in one particular field. You go to social science uh, department and then you can study political science, uh, human science. You can literally study anything, but they're all under one umbrella called social sciences. So because of that, that's why my degree is under social sciences. But what I studied was gender and politics. My thesis was specifically on women's participation in parliaments, national parliaments. Uh, for my master's, I look at both Japan and the Arab region. Specifically, I looked at Tunisia. So I looked at uh, the head of states, which is head of government, and sort of the policies that they introduced to empower women and how that has sort of impacted the women's status uh, in particular societies, in this case, Japan and Tunisia. Uh, it was a very, very interesting story that I will tell you about later as to why I chose those particular countries. Uh, for my PhD, on the other hand, I shifted completely to the Arab region and I looked at Tunisia and Jordan and I look at the kind of policies because, you know, there's a lot of um, scholarly works out there saying that we need to have more women in parliament. But then uh, other than just having more women, it's important to show the impact that women can have. And I think that is more a better way of persuading people uh, or the governments to increase women's participation is to show them the impact that women can actually have. And a lot of the studies that exist mostly focus on women. Okay, increase women to deal with women's issues. And uh, mm. it's sort of... <laughs> 
a little bit contradictory because you know women should not only deal with women's issues but they might have a say in other aspects it's not men's uh, traditional issues are women's issues and uh, you know sorry uh, soft issues are more women's issues and more harder hardcore issues like energy <laughs> and military are more men's issues so sort of what i wanted to do is to share women's experiences uh in the national parliament themselves what kind of policies they promoted what kind of backgrounds they come from because even women as themselves they generally put us as one homogeneous group arab women and i really wanted to sort of dissect and see who are these women themselves what backgrounds do they come from uh you know what are they what there's the social economic level their educational level all of that yeah, uh and sort of like sort of generalization of thing is is yeah i know that humans generally speaking if you take us as one group like yeah we basically behave in a certain way mm-hmm. kind of together but then i guess when you again when you're trying to do studies and basically dissect it's you shouldn't really kind of group everyone all together like arab women like what what are we which one exactly. like what which one like you know exactly. i i mean we are, we're both from yemen so i think yemeni women are like They're completely really different. different like from egypt egyptians or like from Jordanians or like from Tunisians exactly. or like every exactly. all every country has its own kind of yes. characters yes. right yes. but again policy is something that tends to be more consistent not, not completely of course uh, historically it might be different and you know different aspects but sort of the policies the approaches and uh, we have to you know acknowledge that we do have certain aspects that sort of bind us together things like religion things like um uh culture Uh, although that can be arguably in another sense but generally those are aspects the arab identity or whatever those are yeah but don't you think like even if you come to you know culture or religion it's kind of practiced differently yes. in different regions exactly, right exactly exactly uh, but I, i what i'm trying to say specifically in this case is just that you could argue that you could argue that to a certain degree uh there is a commonality there in terms of identity in general now when you go in deeper it's very different but from sort of an abstract point of view you can say okay they have this commonality so as a result i can do a study on them to find the differences now that exist ah, kind of you I get see. it so yeah i see yes uh Okay so you said like you're going to go back to it again like ah uh, yes like the so now yeah. the process itself is very different so i came to japan and the way mex okay i'm a mex scholar which means i got the scholarship from the japanese government maybe the only person with social from social sciences that got mm-hmm. this uh, uh, this i i don't even know how i convinced them but yeah <laughs> uh, <laughs> the only there were a lot of medical students and in my year an engineering student as well uh, but anyway I came here and what we do is we do one year of research. And within that one year of research, the first five to six months are intensive Japanese course for you to learn Japanese. And then the next six months is sort of for you to find out your topic and to prepare for the exam, entrance exam. Now, if you pass the exam, then you can start your master's program. So you have a year there. Sort of the good thing is, you know, you have some time to sort of look at. I don't know whether it's a good thing or a bad thing, but anyways. So I had a year there and I studied Japanese. It was a really good experience. I met amazing people. Now, the last six months was pretty much me just doing random things because my professor didn't really care where I was much more or less because you're just a re- you're not you're not yet a student. So, you know, take your time, study and yeah. prepare. It's not really... It's more like you getting used to the society and the you're environment. You're not my problem yet, yes, kind of. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> so anyway, I I just prepared maybe the last couple of months for the exam. I took the exam, I passed. Now that is when we start to talk. Okay, what, what is what, what exam is it? What, we what have to take written examinations and do an interview. Now, on, on, on what? Program? On so social sciences. So you oh. do get different. So you have an exam paper, mm. and what happens is it will have because social sciences is a broad topic, right? Yeah. So you could have something on political science, something mm. on education, something mm. on, and you choose one or two mm. to answer on. So mm. you just share your opinions, do some referencing. It's not too difficult to be honest. Even though I came from a IT background, it wasn't that hard. Yeah. So this is like this is what. I ha I have zero knowledge about social sciences. To, I'm gonna say that to be honest, but if you're dealing with like material science or like life sciences, right? You have, I mean, it's one plus one equals two, right? Yes. But when it comes to your subjects, like I remember a guy answering, like talking to me about what, like him answering the exams, like during his undergrad or whatever. He said one could answer this question in like a couple of lines. And the other one could write a whole page, and they're both, and they both could be correct. Yes. yes. So how do you deal with that? Uh, like I, that is <laughs> the thing with social sciences. That was the biggest maybe hurdle for me was coming from an IT background, whereby yes, you code something, debug it, check it out, yeah. any errors, fix it, ta-da, you're done. I mean, it's not that easy, but generally, you see the outcome, you know where the errors are, you fix them, life is good. Uh, with social sciences, you need to read a lot. There's a lot of school of thoughts. There's different perspectives, and you can choose which one you feel you you agree with more, or which one is more applicable to your particular case. So as long as it's convincing, you can reference. You know, so you need to study a lot and learn about philosophy, learn about um, uh, social scientists, uh, their different works, so that when you come to answer your your, your the question, you're able to reference these people to show that you know about this field. You know who are the main scholars in this field and how this is applicable to whatever social issue they might present you with. Mm. So, so more or less that is what it is. So you need to study a lot and find which school of thought you feel you connect more with. And you know, that is sort of your strong sort of basis for <laughs> why in the way you, you know, move around in life as well. So yeah. So, uh, yeah. so yeah, we take the exam, we finish. So I, I passed the exam and now we're ready for masters. I had no idea what this masters is going to be about. My professor, so you can get different types of professors. You can get a full hands-on professor who wants to know everything you do. Micromanage you, you, exactly. You can have completely hands-on. Do whatever you do. At the end, come once uh, every three, four months, show me what you did and we're good. Mm. That was my kind of professor. Um, maybe for the first year, it might not have been the best approach for me, but he trusted me a lot. And I think the fact that he trusted me gave me a lot of confidence mm -hmm. that I could do it. So it was more like me managing my time the way I wanted to manage it. I would come, I'd present ideas. He would give me some ideas, mm. uh, but they would ha they would never sort of tell you, do A, B, C. He would mm. say, okay, you know, consider this, consider that. And... Go ahead. That's it. Ten minutes. I'm done with him. I see him after five months. So tell me a little bit more about your master's program. Yes. Like, was there like a system to it? Was there like, a, I know you said like it's a bit different from everywhere else, yes. and special. But can you go a little bit 
deep. explain it okay. a little bit. Okay. Not deep, deep. You know, but just like general. if somebody is interested, like they would know what to expect out okay. of the program. Very good. So social sciences, again, this might differ depending on the university that you apply to, department you apply to. But let me give you a general sense in terms of what I, I came across. As I said, you have six months to prepare. Uh, generally, what will happen is your professor is going to be one of the members of the and the team or committee who set the questions. So if your sensei is, mine was political science, he was civil society, he will set a question in political science. So he would tell me, make sure you answer the political science question because I'm on the committee for political science. And he would share a couple of books for me to read and say, you know, these are most important. So now I would take that and I would prepare. Now, if you're interested in education and your professor is under education, you're gonna answer the question in education. And then now you are gonna do a lot of your the rest of your two years or three years, whatever, is going to be mostly, you can take other courses, of course, but mostly going to be in that particular field. Now, my sense, as I said, civil society, political science. So I took and then I took, I have to take, of course. So how it happens, and maybe it's the same for natural sciences, you have to take your senses, your professor's classes. You must, it's a must. Uh, seminars, classes, whatever they may be, you have to take all of them. So those are some of the courses you take. So you have a specific set of uh, courses that you need to do. I think for master's, it's 30 courses within the two years that you need to finish. And those 30 courses can be anything within your department. So generally, you can choose something, of course, always what your professor takes. You'll have electives. You'll have different topics. You go in, you join. Uh, it's mostly a lot of discussion, a lot of reports, not exams, which is not what I was used to. But home we had a lot of tests but here is write a paper on so and so and i'm like uh, i don't know what this is about so yeah the only time i did research was research for it and it was very different so while you take your courses which are these 30 courses you have to be doing your thesis in parallel and trying to find your thesis and that is not easy it's i, I was telling him this analogy earlier i said it's imagine yourself being taken to the sea or the ocean and somebody tells you swim you don't know where to swim, how to swim, when to swim, and just like swim. So literally that is what happened to me is find your way. I don't know, like guide me. <laughs> nope, <laughs> it's your, your responsibility. And there's so many books, there's so much to catch on. It's, it's, uh, it, was, it was unbelievable. But anyways, so what I did was I started writing a couple of proposals. At first I wanted to do international relations because I really wanted to just do my master's and after my master's I was really hoping to study Japanese well and then go back and be like an ambassador or a bridge between Japan and Yemen so that was my initial initial dream yeah got crushed <laughs> there's still hope you, you never know though right? yeah, yeah you yeah. never know but anyway so um I wanted to do international relations we talked to my professor because he's more of a civil society we talked about that a lot then I decided, okay, I want to do something on Yemen, of course. So I want to do civil society. And my professor said, that's saturated. There's a lot of scholarly literature on it. And right now with the situation at that time, which was because of the war, it might be very difficult to get data. Yeah. So he was like, please reconsider it. And then, you know, I thought about it for some time. I was like, okay, the other thing I really want to study is gender, women specifically. And I said, okay, uh, I want to do something on women. He's like, okay, cool. But uh, you need to do something in Japan too. And I'm like, how do I connect? How do I possibly bring, like, because in social sciences, uh, political science, whatever it may be, when you come to write your thesis and when you're doing comparative or case studies, there needs to be a, a very, very convincing reason as to why you're comparing or studying two particular cases. 
you can't just say today I feel like studying A and B. You have B, to justify yeah, You have to really choice. justify it, right? Yeah. So, I there was tr- Japan and the Arab world are very far, very different from each other. So it was really difficult. Now, one thing I did know was I wanted to study policy and politics, right? So I said, okay, uh, let's look at the Arab region and sort of find which countries are doing well in terms of women's empowerment. And at that time, it was the Abe administration, who is the longest serving prime minister of Japan. Um, he retired in 20, well, resigned in 2020. Uh, so what I had done was I was like, okay, the Abe administration right now is re- promoting women's empowerment. So at that time, one of, so what he had done was the Abe administration, just to give you a quick idea was he was, the Japanese economy is in a really bad shape. It's sinking. Uh, it's even, even worse nowadays. Yeah. So generally what he did was he introduced three structural reforms, uh, pillars of how to revive the economy. And one of them was womanomics, which is bringing more women into the economy. And that would sort of help the GDP and growth in general. So I was like, okay, he's trying to introduce reforms. And when I looked at Tunisia, which is which is like the capital of Arab women. In 1956, the Habib Bourguiba, which was the ex or the first president after the independence of Tunisia, introduced policies to empower women. And from then on, uh, a lot of women empowerment sort of reforms were introduced and policies. Uh, arguably, there's a lot there, of course, to be discussed, but generally introduced a lot of policies, which is why Tunisia is where it is today, right? So I was like, okay, there's a reference point there, right? So now when I found that sort of link, I was like, okay, I can make, you know, a two case studies and sort of Comparing. connect them. Com- not, not really compare, but just make a study and use it as a reference point of how, you know, head of states could introduce certain policies and the opportunities and challenges that come up with that. So generally, that was what I did for my master's. So I decided finally after maybe this is the easy the summary. <laughs> this was after more than 10 proposals of different types and being rejected by the professor until I, I reached the one that, you know, he was OK with. And it's like, OK, go ahead. Did he like uh, give you a few options to go through or like direct you in a certain way? Or just he was he left everything up to you and then you decided which research to go? Completely up to me, only because he's not an expert in the Arab region. He's not an expert on gender. Uh, I tried to touch his topic. So you could do two things. He, he has a lot of data. He's a very He has a very high position in, uh, in the university. So he had his own data, which he could just use. Uh, but you need to know Japanese. I did not know Japanese. Then, what so. data do you work with? Okay. Like... Uh, like you, you say he has a lot of data. What kind of data do you work So with? data can be in different forms, interviews, surveys, questionnaires, uh, so many different forms. So generally they would conduct a questionnaire, maybe 500 people, 1,000 people. And then after that, they'd conduct, con- conduct interviews, uh, open interviews, closed interviews, uh, focus group interviews. And they would have a bunch of data on a particular topic. And then they need someone to sort of screen through it and clean it and then write a, t- a topic on a specific area. So, but a lot of the data was in Japanese. So most of the Chinese students who came in new kanji were able to take his data, yeah. but I couldn't. Oh. So he was like, okay, then you have to find something of your something. own. But generally it's you and yourself. And the, the worst thing I think about Japan specifically, there's a lot of great things. But one thing when it comes to research is that your professor will, both my professors, both my master's and my PhD, your professor might not necessarily and highly probably not be in your field. And because of that, 
you have to do a lot of the, the work yourself. Mm. The, my professor for, as I said, my master's was civil society and he was overseeing gender. He was uh, overseeing um, other social issues like the most random and different media, <laughs> like so many different topics. It's, it's unbelievable. So the same thing for my PhD. She was a media expert, so she could, she was really good at research but not at my field. So a lot of that has to do with you networking and finding the resources yourself. So the the outcome of your research and your like master's and uh, what were the outcomes first, like from, from your master's research? What, what did you find out? Okay, so from my master's research, again, as I said, I was mostly looking at the aspect of Japan or focusing mostly on Japan and Tunisia as a reference point. But what I would say is top-down reform is not necessarily a, a positive thing, a good thing, just to keep it very simple. Mm -hmm. Because one thing I realized was I was sort of looking at the speeches and the different policies that the prime minister would talk about uh, in the parliament or in general speeches and international media when he makes them. And then I look at the actual targets on the ground and what is actually happening when it comes to implementation and there was a huge gap there. So there was a huge rhetoric whereby, you know, they would say what they want people to hear, but when it comes to implementation, there's still a lot that needs to be done. Of course, a couple of years is not enough to sort of measure that, but still, uh, till today, we're at 2022, the gap is still quite big. So in terms of reaching the targets, it's far from. And, and for a country like Japan, you would expect women to, you know, to hold a bigger role in the society but that's not necessarily the case now is it exactly so the democratic state state of a country or the level of socio-economic development does not directly translate into equality so no matter how not advanced, even the education uh not necessarily so japan has one of the highest uh education levels for yeah. women yeah. in the world yeah. however the women are well educated they go to university they, once it comes after graduating they get married they but is that like quit. i don't know i'm asking you like because you know this is basically your research field and I, i'd really love your opinion on that i think when it comes to equality you know japan is ranked very very low I, I think as low as some of middle eastern countries or whatever like yes. i think i heard of a, a study or like some research, I, I don't exactly remember what it is, mm -hmm. but it's really ranked Japan that low. Is it really that bad? And why is it that bad? So, I mean, it is true that we look at numbers to sort of define what is equality and what is not equality. I don't completely agree with that sometimes because uh, countries like, many countries in the Arab region, I don't want to specify, ha have more equality. If you're going to look at specific cases for example let's look at national parliament uh countries like rwanda are the highest in the world rwanda is number one i don't know if it's been beaten the record yet rwanda has 60 percent or more representation of women in national parliaments so if you were to look at that you would say rwanda has more equality but again uh i do not completely agree that you know indices are the only sort of measure for us to define women's empowerment um Japan has a lot to do when it comes to specific sectors. So, for example, uh, there's so much I can talk about. I do not want to complicate this, but let's let's make it quite simple. In in when we talk about equality, 
we talk about different sectors. You're looking at health, you're looking at education, you're looking at political participation, uh, economic participation. So you look at different and then you sort of analyze and based on that, you see where the country ranks. Yeah. Uh, so Japan does very well in health, very well in education. Politics and economy is very low. So that is what makes it lower, you know, lower. So we do know that Japan needs to work more on including more women in the economy and in politics. But in other aspects, they're one of the best in the world. Right? Yes. And it's a, it's a bit... Uh, I, I also don't realize... Even in, like, I'm a dentist and I see dentists around me. And dental, like dental students, like, as always, for, for some reason in dentistry, there's always a huge number of female, like, dentists, right? Yeah. Uh, even compared to you know male dentists, uh, in in Yemen it's hugely improportionate. Like it's a lot more female dentists than male dentists. Uh, in Japan, I don't know the exact numbers, but I would say at least it would be kind of 50-50. Maybe okay. I don't have exact numbers. numbers though. Okay. Uh, the the problem though is that after they graduate. Um, like you, you would first work as a, I don't know, as a practitioner in a, dent, in a dental clinic mm -hmm. with a senior dentist who owns the clinic, right? And very, very few dentists proceed from being someone who works in a clinic mm -hmm. till having their own oh, dental office right? office, right? And this is kind of makes it a bit kind of a, a bit difficult for, you know, kind of representation for female dentists World Japanese female dentists worldwide. There are there are very few like leading female dentists, Japanese female dentists, and uh, <laughs> and therefore like you you would see uh, most dental faculties are hugely male. Yes. Like uh, very few female dental professors compared to you know other countries. Yes. Yes. And I I wonder like how do you <laughs> Explain I don't know, how that. do you explain that? Yes. Like, why is that happening? So that is where social science comes to play, right? Yeah. So we look at these social issues and we say, okay, what is happening here? Yeah. We interview, we collect data, we ask and we, we look at policies. We look at, you know, the reality on the ground and we sort of examine and identify what could be the probable cause, right? I haven't checked for dentists, so I cannot say exactly. But uh, one thing that I found generally in the Japanese society is that... Uh, there is definitely something societal, whether it's the corporate culture, uh, whether it's the social norms, there, there are different aspects that you have to consider uh, as to why this is. One of them I could look, I could talk to you about is the policy aspect. Uh, till today, Japan has a policy that uh, reduces taxation on families if the mother or if one partner isn't working. Mm. So that is something to look at because you know, that is a good policy to have because it reduces the burden on families. But at the same time, many cases, it's better for the family, for the woman to work, for example, part time or in small positions because it's less burden on the family. And it's really, you know, financially uh, difficult here in Japan, as much as, you know, people think that Japan is a, a very well developed country and they get good pays, but it's not really easy financially for most of the Japanese. Yeah. So those are things you have to look at. It's the reality on the ground. Uh, so yeah, those could be, uh, child rearing is one of the major issues that came up in politics as well and in economy in general. Many women get married and they stay home or when they have kids because 
again, you have to look at how different the society is. For example, in our society, you live with close by or close to your mother, your grandmother. You know, there's a whole family. There's a whole community sort of supporting you, more or less. It's it's much different. Here, you're they're pretty much alone and secluded. So it takes a lot of time, effort, energy in which they they need to. It's it's really difficult for them to be able to manage the family, right? Yeah. So they, they always use that as the reason why or they... Whenever we you know, have interviews, they say, well, childbearing takes so much time and effort and we can't, we can't manage. And considering the corporate culture in Japan, whereby you need to, to dedication is, is core <laughs> to how Japanese are. Yeah. Like, it comes down most probably to the, if you look back in history, Japanese have always been agricultural as they're farmers, yeah. right? So, you know, the longer you work, mm. the more you reap. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Uh, unlike with the West, for example, they are always hunters, uh, which is more about efficiency and so on. So those are things you have to look at. Now, in terms of Japanese, because of that culture of, you know, hard work and so on, women cannot do all of that and manage. The double burden is not easy. Mm-hmm. And because of that, it's just so much easier to just do part time and uh, be able to yeah. manage the Still household. Still have a household. Yes. So. Okay, so th- this was, I don't know, we, we kind of, You know, we we talked in different places, but like this was like your master's studies, right? Yes, yes. Uh, How about your PhD? Like, how did it? Okay, uh, so for my PhD, I had a little bit more control. Um, First of all, before, like, why did you decide to go into PhD? Like, uh, PhD, yeah. You're reminding me of my PhD. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Okay, so as I said earlier, I really wanted to be an ambassador. I just wanted to do my master's. I was really not hoping to do a PhD. Uh, unfortunately, because of the war in Yemen, uh, I just decided to continue with my PhD because I still had no idea what was going to happen uh, in Yemen. And I didn't know if I could go back. I, I really had no idea. And I thought, you know, it's not a bad thing. You get, you still get scholarship and you can still sort of do something and add something to your CV uh, while I sort of configure what I want to do next. So mostly that was the driver. That's real. Realistically speaking, and I mm. think the reality for most PhD students, uh, especially MEC students that I have mm. met, is many of them take that route because there's not enough time between the master's and the PhD to really configure what you want to do next. Again, depending on your field and what. Okay, so you decided to pursue your PhD. So I decided and... to pursue my PhD. I was like, you know, it's it's so far research has been fun. Um, let, let's <laughs> yeah. keep going. Let's keep at it. Yeah. So I continued. I ha- so I had a lot of obstacles. My professor retired within a year, so I had to change professors. Now that's just one thing across many other things, personal issues that happened that made my first year close to not doing anything for my PhD. So the first year was really really hard for me. Now the second year I had a new professor. She had new ideas, you know, different from my professor, and she was more hands on. in comparison to my other professor. So, you know, she was, I mean, in terms of guidance, it was good. It was really good because because of her, I learned how to do research. Like I got the skills. It was difficult. I got the skills, but it wasn't easy. But, but do you feel like you learned more when with the professor that lets you do everything by yourself or with the hands-on professor? Huh, that's going to be difficult. Uh, with the... Because there are two different cases. By the time I reached my PhD, I'd already gained some skill sets. But I would say with her, I still gained more or I learned more. But the, again, I will not lie that having... Because the other professor was still on my committee when I moved to PhD. His support was still really important to me. And the support he gave me was 
partially the reason I finished on time. Because I had two years to finish my PhD. It was almost impossible. It was uh, like, no, it's nobody. <laughs> nobody will do that. Like, who, yeah. No way. And uh, I remember speaking to my professor and she said, listen, this is the advice she gave me. She said, in PhD, you will do what you need to do to graduate. And then do what you want to do after you graduate. Yes. So that yes. is, she was honest. So she yes. is, she's not Japanese. She's married to a Japanese, but she's from the West. So she's Canadian. So she, she understood sort of uh, the reality on the ground. So she was very, it was quite insightful. It was nice to have that sort of different perspective and the reality of, okay, this is what you're dealing with. So I remember going to her and I said, and I think many people, maybe not many will do this. I said, what do you need from me? What do you need from me? And I will do it. I would say like this is this is a good approach to go by it. Many people don't. Many people, I, I don't know. Like I think many people, especially the ones that get lost in PhD, are the people who really want to do a lot and want to. Uh, they aim really high, I think. And I don't know, but I don't think that this is the best way to go about it. Yes. I think you need to balance the your. Your, your expectations and, and then things that you can do to just you know just graduate yes we have three years three years so what i realized when i started working later on i was interacting with japanese scholars was they would do their phds for up to five to seven years sometimes eight <laughs> years they would do it part-time and in the meantime yeah. they would be lecturing they would be doing different things so by the time they graduate they have the years of experience teaching and whatnot and they have the network and they're in yeah. Unlike what we do, we come in, you have a scholarship, you have three years, you need to figure everything out, do everything and do it. Years, right? So that's the reality. It's not easy. You need to consider all of that. Uh, I would say the fact that I had a Canadian professor might have helped maybe that form of communication. Mm -hmm. uh, but again, my previous professor was open as well in general and just wanted me. He was really you know, supportive and said, do I'm, I'm, I really trust you. You're really good at what you do. Just go for it. So that, that was good. But my professor, PhD professor, was very hands-on. So I told her, I remember I did very well until my my first defense. So we have three, three defenses to do. Mm -hmm. So my first, which is public defense. Mm -hmm. I did my public defense and I, I passed. Then my second defense, which is the main one, if you pass, if you don't pass that, you cannot graduate. And I went to her and she said, well, you did a lot of changes that you did not really consult with us and, and so on. So, and it was really hurting, right? And she said, I'm not sure if you can graduate on time. I'm like, I'm so close. What are you talking about? I'm right there. Yeah. And I said, tell me, give it to me. Tell me what I, because I went into straight depression, right? Because I've been doing this for so long and the, it was light at the end of the tunnel. I'm almost yeah. out. And they would find a way to make you feel. Yeah, this is a thing in Japan. I don't know. So many people told me the exact kind of same story. And I don't know, you said she's Canadian, right? Yes. Did she learn this from Japan or what? Like I, I, they they wait for you until like you're there, you're almost graduating. And then they would tell you this sentence, the exact same sentence. I don't see you graduating like this, or I don't think you're gonna be able to graduate like this, or this is not enough for you to graduate. While you've been working with them for a long time, so was that all about like <laughs> what came up exactly yeah, in your case was, what came up uh so to be honest um i did i ha i did very well in my public defense so i had a lot of time in my hand and i said okay let me make it even better and i added some stuff 
And then when I added some stuff, I did not really consult, which is a negative thing. If you do something on your own without consulting and them agreeing, that can be really bad. But it was not just me, even the other girl who was with me, uh, she also had similar comments. Anyways, we sat down, we talked and, you know, I, I felt horrible. It was really bad. And the thing that helped me the most was the community. You know, we have, you know, your lab or study room. For us, it was very international. So... We just go once you go into that room, it's like you have, Whoa, you know, you're like this and that. You run your life out, and yeah. you know, everybody shouts and complains and gets angry. So it was like therapy for us. Yeah. So I, I did a lot of that and I felt better. And I, was, I had a lot of friends who were supportive and listened to me and you know, complained about their own issues. So having that sort of similar sort of community really helps. And I remember I'm a person who I want to do something because I don't have time. So I, I literally told her. What do I need to do? I will do it. She's mm. like, you know, time. I was like, tell me what let's, I need to do. It, it doesn't matter. <laughs> yeah. I will do it. Not, not to be cocky or anything. I was like, I put too much time and effort into this. What is it? If I don't do it, you can say whatever. But tell me each and every step. And if I don't do it, fine. I will do it. There's no such thing as time. The time is. Uh, Just let me know what I gotta do. So, anyways, she told yeah. it to me, and I managed to do everything, and somehow I graduated. I not somehow I. I did graduate on that. Okay, so with your PhD, um, first of all, let's l touch a little bit about your PhD and what was it about and what okay. were the outcomes of your PhD. Okay. And, and l later on, we'll talk about, you know, things that were difficult, like okay. the most difficult parts and most okay. fun parts. Okay. Yeah. So my PhD, as I said earlier, was about uh, women in national parliament, specifically in Jordan and Tunisia. I wanted to do Morocco too, but there was an issue with their their site so I couldn't get data from there but anyways I ended up taking Tunisia and Jordan so what I did was I examined the women in national parliaments especially I chose those two countries because they introduced quotas mm -hmm. uh, and I wanted to see how quotas sort of translate into impact in the Arab region what do you mean what do you mean by quotas okay quotas uh, uh, very important so gender quotas are a form uh, a tool a reform tool introduced by governments mm -hmm. to ensure that there's more women represented uh, in politics for example they will say okay 30 percent of women in parliament have to be women it can either be one enforced on the parliament itself, it can be through the party, political party. Uh, they're different from the quotas that can be introduced. But anyways, the idea is they set aside a certain percentage and they're like, okay, they, you have to have this many women filling the seats. So yeah, that was why I looked at it to see these women who are actually selected, what, what kind of women are they? What is their background? What do they actually do? What kind of policies do they promote? Do they promote similar policies to what has been said in other scholarly works? Or are they different? Is it different in, in, in these two particular countries or not? So yeah, that was what I looked at. And I realized that, yeah, in, in these particular cases, Jordan, Tunisia, uh, the women were very diverse. Even their interactions within the parliament was different. Those that were independent, those were affiliated to religious parties, those that were affiliated to uh, independent or more liberal parties. So depending, all of that was different. And I sort of uh, was able to identify the kind of policies they promoted and why they would promote that. And I realized that many of the women wanted to prove themselves more or less. I, that's the way I, I claim it. And as a result, they they would engage in different discussions. It wouldn't just be women's issues, but women all the different topics that men would argue but again there was a lot of backlash in that case with men for example randomly in the parliament yeah, somebody would insult uh, i don't want to say the insult but something you know like 
screw the Skoda or something, you know, oh, like really? Skoda that brought these women here or when they're <laughs> angry, right? So things like that, you'd see language, you'd see interaction, you'd see so many things that are very, you know, interesting mm. in, in Parliament. So generally that is what I look at as in policy outcomes. Uh-huh. Yes. So... I don't know, like you said, like getting that data and like, I'm sure like there were a lot of difficulties that you faced. So if you can point to one thing that was quite difficult that mm. you went through, you know, during your PhD, what, what would it be? Ah, one thing that was very difficult. Uh, there's not just one thing, but I will choose one that <laughs> yeah. I think you had pointed this out earlier about we come into PhD or even masters, but mostly PhD with big dreams, big ambitions, right? Yeah. It's like coming with a huge fish. I caught a fish, you know, <laughs> I'm good for life. And, you know, the butcher takes a knife and gives you like the sushi thing. Yeah. And you're like, where did my fish go? Yeah. So that is technically what is happening is how to be very realistic. Um, I went in with a lot of ambitions and I, I had to bring them down. Like the idea of learning how to do a PhD. PhD is is about very specific outcomes. A, B, C is learning how to bring all of that, everything you consume. You read a lot. There's so many trying to identify the gaps because there's a lot of research out there. There's so much. How do you know what you're doing is the right thing or the right way or nobody has done it before or will it even be useful? Uh, how to take those ideas that you have and you know fill it within the gap that exists and actually make something that would make a difference i think that was not an easy thing for me it, mm. it took a long journey of research and trial and error writing rewriting i had more than 50 different drafts of writing and rewriting my thesis and trying to make it come together it's like it's like an art mm. you know you have so many pieces but you need to bring it together to make sense and it's 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 really difficult because it's very subjective i yes. mean it, it 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 has to make a story right yes. like and the story has to make sense yes so so that story that designing that yeah. story bringing it together so that i'm like yes that was the hardest and the most rewarding experience because i gain skills now that i feel are very critical because i'm i'm writing a lot much a lot more easier right now because mm. of those skill sets that i had gained so yeah that was the hardest i would say that, that was like you, you mentioned that the most difficult part was basically, you know, making up this story for your yes. studies. Uh, what was the most fun part? Like, what, uh, what was the thing that, you know, like brought you inspiration and enjoyed a lot? And, you know, the good part of your PhD. Okay. I would say there are two parts that are good in my PhD. One had to do with personal, uh, you know, community-wise, and one had to do like, with academic rewarding experiences. Uh, let's start with the fun part, which is my my community. So, which I would also recommend to future students who are interested in coming to do research. Um, as much as places like Tokyo and, you know, very um, metropolitan cities <laughs> are very sort of uh, trendy and they seem captivating, uh, there's a lot of distance between you and people around you finding a community is really hard uh i was in scuba scuba is like an hour from tokyo but by the tx because of that it's i wouldn't say it's a rural it's a very it's a science city so it's quite developed it's known for research but it's not as developed as tokyo obviously and there's a lot of space there so it's cheaper to live and that means the communities are 
more likely to be more connected, right? So we had Facebook groups, we had we had different sort of support systems around that would help foreigners. Still today, it's getting better and better. Advice, uh, if you want to find something, whatever it is, there's a huge community there. Also, because there are a lot of Mex students, there are international students as well. Uh, you get to connect, meet people from different parts of the world. You create, you choose your family. You get to choose who becomes part of your family. And uh, it's it's a learning experience. So I think for me, it was learning to find the people that fit in my circle, people who I feel I connected with, regardless of where they're from, who they are, whatever it might be, finding that group. And for eight years until now, I have that strong sort of support till now we're in touch. Uh, so I think we had a huge community, a very, very, very positive, a good one that would be there all through no matter what. And also because the school campus, so, you know, you can always visit each other. It's 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 really rewarding. My my study room or for you guys lab, I next to me was a guy from Serbia, next which is a, who is a very good friend of mine. Next to him, someone from Lithuania, somebody from Germany, someone from Indonesia, Ethiopia, uh, Kyrgyzstan, Kazakhstan, uh, uh, from all over the world. You could you could just think about it. So you get to experience and learn and to create this bond that you would never have imagined or have had if you were just in your own community or only with people that are similar to you. And I, I personally really love that. So yes, I think the most rewarding is coming back to my study room and venting out my concerns <laughs> and knowing that people will relate and understand yeah. the tears, the joy, the laughter, the hanging out after the laugh, like all of that was, uh, it's a bubble, but it's a beautiful bubble to experience. So that was one. Would you say that it, this helped you out of like bad situations that you've been in? You have no idea. Definitely, like during you PhD, you will have these lows. So, do you, how, yeah. did that help you, or what else did you do to get you out of that situation? So that saved me a lot. That that literally saved my life. Like in, in real situations, like whether it's health concerns, whether it's um, personal worries, whether it's stress, whether it's just someone to to understand. Like my friend from India would, when it's Eid, would knock my door and go on TV, sorry, on YouTube and learn how to make a specific like dish and make it for me and say happy Eid. And like people are just very genuinely kind and, and just nice people. So, and they would be there through thick and thin. And, and this is ev almost everybody's experience in Scuba. It wasn't just, the people are just genuinely really nice and they stay for there for a long time. So that is one that saved me. Uh, something else is you need to have a hobby. You need to find a way to de-stress. Like this is the reality. Yeah. If you're a gym addict, head to the gym. You're in Japan, there's so many places to run, to do things. If you want to do yoga, there are circles for practically anything you could join. Uh, the reality is, this is something we should talk about later, about the reality of coming and thinking you're going to have a Japanese community, but the, it's very different than you will not have. Generally, it's the international students that are your community. Yeah. Uh, but again, there's some great Japanese people I met, but generally speaking, your community are generally foreign-based uh, from around the world. Now, the second, that's a hobby, is second. Third? <sighs> what is your hobby? Let me ask you, like, uh, I know. What, yes. did, what did you do to vent? Okay, so, as I said, I love traveling I love hanging out I love discovering places there's so many places around that we could go and I traveled all over Japan like I've been to Fukuoka to Okinawa to Osaka to uh, Kyoto to to everywhere like Kobe literally everywhere I had a Japanese friend who drove us all around <laughs> Japan as well and we went on, on different trips so 
there, there's so much out there like uh, that that you can do, and I love exploring. Japan is amazing in terms of you know the attention to detail and the specific seasonal like foods and seasonal things to do. It's it's amazing. There's it's mind blowing. So the experience is really rewarding. I, I love that. I like reading too. If it's just a quiet evening, I would read different books. Um, I love speaking and hanging out with my friends as well, helping them, helping people. You know, helping each other whenever we had events, uh, whatever it is we might do. So yeah. That's a, another way. So those are among a few of mine. I love cooking, so that was one way I used to. So I created Yemen in in Tsukuba. Uh, everybody knew me in Tsukuba for cooking. So everybody's like, "We're going to Mimi's. We're gonna eat." So I would make you know the whole like dishes, and I have like ten people in my house, and everybody's eating and having a wonderful time. So yes, uh, I was known for that. But yes, that's another hobby that I have. So, yes. Nice. Cooking is an interesting thing. Like uh, many people vent using cooking, and I, I wish I could cook. I cannot cook <laughs> to save my life, but <laughs> you know. So, yeah. Yes. So I see. Uh, probably like I've been asking you so many no, questions no, 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 right no, now, but we'll go. We're going to conclude this with uh, one last question. Uh, if there is anything that you would like to talk to our audience. Uh, something that you would uh, give advice to somebody who is interested in doing PhD in generally okay. and doing PhD in Japan specifically. What would you tell them to do? Okay, that's a that's a lot. But um, to be honest, I will tell you that we think or think twice before you go into any, whether it's masters or PhD. Think about the reason why you're why you're doing it. Do your research in terms of ask people who have gotten it before. Um, check with even your people in your field if you're uh, a medical expert. See why 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 do you do you really need it? First of all, do you really need to get this degree? What will this add to your CV? You know how important is it? What is it that that thing can offer? Uh, that PhD or that research can offer that you cannot get, for example, from doing experience elsewhere. So I think do your diligent research like make sure you ask people make sure you read about it make sure you know why you're going into it don't just go into it for the sake of going into it because to be honest uh, it's not easy and it's it's one hell of, of a journey it's very rewarding in terms of growth but you want to know at the expense of what right so why are you actually partaking on this journey where do you want to go make sure you ensure that wherever you're going don't be like me people were like what is wrong with you who goes to japan to study social sciences continue your it like what is wrong with you so yeah i got that a lot so make sure not that i regret it uh, every experience is a great experience but make sure you consult i know it's difficult especially in our part of the world to get role models or people with that much experience in your field that can help you but reach out to people you would be amazed at the information you'll get if you just reach out to someone uh, reach out contact people ask do your diligent research uh, and any experience is a learning experience of course but just make sure you know what you're getting into somewhat and uh, i hope and wish you all the best in whatever you do yeah so thank you very much dr Mariam. thank you for having me uh, it's a pleasure it was very, very interesting and, you know, eye-opening <laughs> to listen to you because I, I really had no idea, like, uh, how do social sciences go or, like, th this whole, you know, this whole field was basically a mystery to me. And thank you for, you know, explaining it. Not at all. My pleasure. Yeah, I hope uh, you guys also learned, like I learned today <laughs> from Dr. Mayam. And, yeah, we'll see you in another episode. Okay. Take bye care. Bye.
I hope that you enjoyed today's podcast. In here, we talk about science, the stories behind the research, and the struggle and the success of the scientists. In the scientist podcast, everyone will learn something new about the science while also learning about the stories of the people behind the science. I believe by hearing these stories, we can start to recognize and appreciate the efforts of these researchers. So hopefully you enjoyed today's episode and you're going to subscribe and follow. So do it if you haven't already and see you in the next episode. Peace.